G'day there, guys, and welcome back to Blowing Cartridges, your not-so-standard video game podcast. I am your host, Zach Clark, joined by my fellow co-host, Brendan Tam. Brendan, how are you doing on this fine week? Yeah, keeping warm. My mic has its uh, noise muffler thing on it, so that's keeping warm as well. So it's all about getting through winter and getting through, I guess, what the world is throwing at Victoria and hoping things get a bit warmer soon and a bit clearer. Yeah, I think uh, we could all use a little bit of clarity, <laughs> both in terms of uh, the actual weather and um, how things are going. You know, you know, for those not in Victoria, we're obviously, well, not obviously, but we're in a the second wave lockdown for us here. Um, and so sort of back to where we were back in April of, of the COVID virus, uh, or worst, <laughs> if you look at the case numbers. But, you know, we're getting by. Um, Brendan and I are both healthy and, uh, and Brendan's probably safer than me. He's out in the, out in the regional Victoria where there's far less cases, but you know what? Let's not stress about that. Let's stress about video games. And you know what the best thing to stress about, uh, when it comes to video games, uh, Brendan? What is that, Zach? I I can, I can think of a lot of things to be stressed about when it comes to games. Oh, it's got to be review scores uh, and whether they align with your opinion or not. Because, I mean, what else is there <laughs> to be upset about, you know, more than anything, whether a bunch of critics online care, like, or in some cases, you know, dislike a game that you have a passion for, um, you know, it's the worst, right, when people don't agree with you. That's right. Uh, so you can probably guess that's that's the topic of today's episode, if the title didn't give it away, is... Um, I was really going to say it's reviews, but I don't think it's just reviews. I think we're going to try and take a step back and also look at what it means to have like both an opinion about a game and, and evaluate and criticize a game and what you sort of, when it's okay to do that and when it's not, um, are there boundaries and what are they, what differs between, you know, a mate saying to a mate, oh, this is a pretty good game, uh, versus, you know, you're a reviewer for an IGN or a or a GameSpot um, putting up a, a score that finds its way on Metacritic. I think ultimately, Zach, you're just worried about your fantasy critic points and you, you want your predictions to be correct every year, isn't that right? Yeah, so yeah, 100%. So as a, both Brendan and I participate with some friends, a little uh, thing called Fantasy Critic, which effectively, uh, it's kind of like fantasy football, except you, you draft a list of games coming out hopefully in the year. Uh, and uh, their scores on Open Critic, which is a very similar type of site to Metacritic with a bit of a, a different set of criteria for who gets published. Um, so you're sort of trying to guess what the score is. And I think both of us have realized, along with all our friends, that guessing critic scores is a very different thing to guessing if a game is something we'll like. I think that'd be fair to say. I don't know if, if you agree, but that's what I found. No, I agree. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted to tackle this topic, because especially in recent times with, well, we'll get into it later, but well, you have Origa- Paper Mario Origami King, you've had The Last of Us Part 2, you've had these games that have been very divisive in the, I guess, the public sphere in amongst gamers' views. And both games are, I guess, you'd argue are good games. They have relatively good reviews a lot of people have played them and uh enjoyed them but you always get very strong opinions either way and i think maybe this is what we should start the conversation with because i guess people always have very strong opinions on a game and it's i guess it's a natural phenomenon that we want our opinions to reflect other people's opinions and i know a lot of people will flock to the internet and will open up an ign open up a euro gamer or vice or us gamer or GameSpot or what have you and they'll look at the review of the game they just played or a game they're looking at playing and if 
especially for games they've played, if there's a review or a game they're very excited and hyped for, if the reviewer didn't enjoy it and said, oh, there's all these problems with the game or it doesn't live up to the hype, if if you've spent the last six months, two years, however long you've waited for this game, really excited for it and this realisation that, oh, people don't love it, there's this phenomenon that people get very defensive and they'll start attacking the reviewer. They'll get re- they'll attack people that are attacking the game and they'll really want to like it and really want to defend this game, even in situations where they haven't even played the game. Yeah, I mean, we get really emotionally invested in our video games and video game franchises. And yeah, we a lot of people, I mean, I, I think I've been guilty of this as a, uh, when I was younger, I think I've become a bit less inclined to to stress about it but as a kid i definitely thought you know went to any review thinking i'm expecting you know this game to get an eight or a nine or a seven or whatever it is and when i see something out of the blue that makes it look worse uh you do feel a bit disappointed and i think intentionally or unintentionally it's very often or very common for you to uh for people i should say at least to express that against the reviewer rather than maybe think am i actually disappointed in the review uh or am i disappointed that this might not be the game I thought it was going to be. For, as you said, in some cases, you know, a number of years, uh, you could be looking forward to something. Uh, and obviously, certain franchises, I think, carry really heavy weight to them. I think it's very different. You know, we've, we've mentioned a few games already uh, that have had pretty um, strong feedback. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way. Uh, and they're, they're from franchises with pretty passionate fan bases. You know, they're, they've come from games that were critically acclaimed and the next in the line, and, and people carry a lot of expectations on that, which they want to see fulfilled. And that's, I think, what really drives it, is that sort of expectation that the game's going to be good, and then to see it not come to fruition, it, it just ends up being upsetting to people. I think what's also interesting is, and I think Fantasy Critic, again, has really highlighted this, is I think in general, you can develop a bit of a skill for watching trailers, watching, you know, uh, reading previews, watching gameplay videos, and you can sort of pick, in general, what's going to be good. And I almost wonder, do people also feel like, you know, they they've think something's going to be good and it's not? Do they kind of feel a bit of like, oh, crap, I've, I've picked this wrong wrong? And is there a bit of like personal, I won't say shame, but a bit of pride on the line of you've sort of been telling your friends and, you know, a fellow gamers, oh, look out for, you know, this game, it's going to be pretty big, going to be pretty good. Uh, and then, you know, the critics come out and say it's not. I wonder if that also plays a part. I think you've hit the nail on the head because I think in that process we've discussed, I think you become invested in the game and you've become invested in the potential success of the game because you've followed it for so long. You might have placed a pre-order for it. If you're like one of us, you might have placed a pre-order for the limited collector's ed- ultra collector's edition of the game. And when you start hearing feedback of, oh, this game could have been a lot better than it actually is, or there's some serious flaws with the game, you become defensive, you become, well, sort of part of you thinks, oh, surely it can't be that bad. Oh, this guy works for IGN. You can't trust IGN reviews, even though I read IGN every week because I need to get the IGN review scores, but you can't trust them. They're not good reviewers. I'll go to this other niche site that says this game is the best game ever and it's 10 out of 10 and it's amazing. And now I'm going to go on Twitter as well and I'm going to write all these angry tweets about, oh, this review is an idiot. This game is amazing. I haven't played it yet, but it's amazing. It must be. So it's become very much a part of 
online gaming culture. If you go on major, or like I said, on Twitter, if you go on major, I guess, forums, there's still a few left, like your IGN, GameSpot, Reset Era, you'll find people always discussing reviews and you have review threads that collates all reviews and all the review scores. So it's something that fascinates people. And I guess personally, I've, well, we both reviewed games. We've both been a part of that process. And I came out of it very much a bit disillusioned and I very much personally prefer outlets these days that provide reviews that don't have scores, don't do a one to five scale or a ten or one to ten scale. I very much prefer review sites that have moved away from the arbitrary scale. But some people seem very attached to the idea of you can put a number to a game, a ten's the best thing ever, a one is it's broken, it doesn't work. But I think it's all a bit arbitrary. Before I sort of answer that, I'm going to take a quick step back and think about how that's, that sort of system, I suppose, of putting a score to something came to be. And I mean, I don't have any facts, I suppose, so, but, but I can guess. Because um, reviews as a concept have existed uh, well before, obviously, games were a thing, right? You know, I'm sure, you know, you can find a lot of newspapers from uh, back in the day reviewing appliances, reviewing um, probably plays and shows, books, etc., uh, and it's pretty much just adapted that system. And it's a system that I think works very well for most functional products in a way, right? Like if you're reviewing a fridge, um, you're not really that emotionally attached to something. And there's no, there's not a ton of personality or personal preferences when it comes to a fridge. There's some, but in general, you just kind of want to know of the fridges that fit in my fridge space, what's the best one? And you want to see that pretty quickly and and you're going to make a decision. You're happy to action on um, on a, a number or a, a star rating or something of that type. But games are a bit different because not only are they a product, like a commercial product that you review, but it's also an art form. And it's very hard to uh, just trivialize some of the complex sort of emotions and preferences and everyone's personal biases and and stances on things into a number. So I, I to answer your question, I do agree. I, I over the years I have trended away from scores in many ways. Um, you know, some of my favorite uh review sites are things like, you know, a game explain which which don't do a review score, they just do a feeling about how they felt. And I think that's that's pretty good because in many ways that's more similar to like if I came up to you, you know, Brendan and said, Oh, you, you know, we both picked up Paper Mario and I said, How's it going? You know, are you enjoying it? You're not going to tell me, oh, it's a seven. You're going to tell me, <laughs> oh, yeah, I enjoyed this, um, didn't like that. Overall, really happy with it or something like that, right? You're going to you're going to give me more emotions as your critique, I suppose, uh, than, you know, a seven, a six, a ten, a, a nine. And also the fact that the numbers just aren't uniform. Uh, I mean, obviously, again, you have these aggregate sites, Metacritic, OpenCritic, that try to uniform them a little bit, but it it's not uniform. A seven on... One site is is someone else's eight, and if you have decimal places, don't have decimal places. Again, on a five or a ten point scale, it all makes a massive difference, and uh, and and also makes it just almost very illogical uh, when you when you think about it. Well, exactly, and if a site is doing their due diligence and are doing proper reviews, they'd have a internal metric of what a five out of five is, what a three out of five is, what a two and a half out of five is they they generally break it down and they can justify why a game got a score but then you have some other sites that honestly will just have arbitrary scores of well not really arbitrary but the reviewer might have felt oh this is a three out of five what whatever that might mean to the internal review process of that 
individual. They might decide, well, I'm going to put a three on this and call it a day. That's the review for the game. So you're exactly right. You get very skewed results across the board. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting to hear, like, you don't, I feel like you, you sometimes, if you listen to podcasts or do sort of get a chance to hear how journalists come up with their review scores, uh, you hear some really interesting stories. I mean, one of the ones I found most fascinating was um, I listened to the Giant Bombcast, uh, and a lot of them are ex-GameSpot uh, employees from from back in the day, uh, <laughs> before a certain, um, you know, review scandal, surprise, surprise, got a, a pretty prominent member <laughs> let go from that site. And they were talking about how back in the day, I think it's it's changed now, they had like an Excel spreadsheet of of weighting things like, you know, story, music, you know, uh, graphics, gameplay, etc. And then also just an X factor and like how, you know, you'd, you'd sort of go in, you sort of have a feeling for what the score would be. You put in accurate numbers for the, the graphics and all that kind of stuff. And then you use that X factor to kind of like tweak it to what feels right. And it just goes to, sh- to show, while we can sort of see there are logic there is a logic framework sometimes in place, and I'm sure for the big sites they they have to have something like that. It still just kind of boils down to an opinion. Uh, I mean, we've both reviewed games, and I can definitely tell you I operated on a five-point scale on Rocket Chainsaw, and if I looked at my reviews, I haven't done this, but I bet you'd find there's a lot of threes and a lot of fours, Um, but mostly threes because three is like that middle of the road. This game is kind of inoffensive uh, because two, even though it's, you know, on a five-point scale, still about the halfway mark felt too harsh, and sometimes four just felt too good because how often do you give a five? Not super often, uh, and that, that's a silly logic. That I, like, why, why do I even have to think about that in hindsight? Like, why am I? I've just written you know a thousand words on what I think about the game. Why am I now spending probably more time stressing about this number at the end? It's such a, a odd experience. I think it's because we know deep down that well, we've been there as well that. A lot of people will open up your review and if they aren't a friend of yours or like your work or someone you know and they're reading your reviews because they know you provide good reviews, they'll just scroll to the bottom of the page, look at the score and say, oh, so this is a game I should be looking at. It got a five out of five or, oh, it's a two out of five. I'm I'm not going, I'm going to ignore this game. It doesn't exist in my imagination anymore. Like I'll carry on. So I think the issue I have with the score at the end of the day, not not only the inconsistencies, the arbitrary nature of a scoring system is that I think it trivializes reviews and it trivializes the role of a critic because I know we'll discuss this further, but I think a role of a critic is more than just assigning a, a score to a game. It's about really diving into the game, exploring what's it all about, how did the graphics perform, is the story narrative cohesive, does it fit together, is it scored well? like musically wise and it's all those factors that a critic can really dive down into and in a ideal world not just in video games in movies in books etc critics play an important role in i guess shaping the creative process because for a successive project the creators of the initial one will go back and look at the feedback they got and think it's like it's like when you're at school or university and you submitted an assignment you want to find out what you did well you want to find out what you did poorly and so you can take that feedback and work it into your net, well, hopefully work it into your next project and produce something that's a lot superior to what your first um, endeavor was. Uh, now, there's one thing, again, I want to take a step back from, kind of a step back from reviews, but go back to like, again, that sort of more casual opinion sharing about games and you might 
do with just some mates or or people if you're just having a chat to them. And one thing I find interesting uh, is, you know, if say for example I was talking to a friend and I was, say it was we're talking about Final Fantasy 13, which I think is notorious uh, or well known at least for having that kind of classic problem of first 20 hours of the game pretty average and then it gets good uh and so let's say my you know a friend picked it up started playing it after 10 hours they say they drop the game and they just stop playing and so yeah i found it boring and i stopped playing playing um i'm never going to say to him you can't tell me that it's bad or you found it boring until you finish it you have to finish it mate like what are you what are you doing like you can't tell me that opinion (laughs) which i find fascinating because like as a as a you know from a friend i think the opinion of i found this so boring I couldn't finish it is quite valid, but naturally with reviews, uh, professional reviews, there is this common understanding that you at least in general beat the game. And now beat is also a bit of a arbitrary term here. I guess I'm just curious, what, what's your view? Do you reckon, how far do reviewers have to go to be able to say that they've properly reviewed a game you know is it just beating the story or is it completing it or is there room to not get to the end and just sort of say hey i've played enough i have a good enough opinion i whatever happens beyond this isn't going to probably change that do you have us what's your stance on that kind of thing well we actually faced this quandary at another castle when i was a reviews editor and uh it was for a game called the escapist and uh a guy called case he did the review for it and uh Basically, we got the review code, I gave it to him, he played the game for about two hours, he wrote up a review and he sent it to me and basically said, yeah, I only played it for two hours, I didn't enjoy this game, it's not great. The tagline he gave it was, it was marginally more exciting than being in prison, so you can tell from that how much he enjoyed it. And I remember, it was either, I can't remember if we had this discussion internally or we were discussing this in the Skype chat with some forum members and website goers, but... I think it might have been internally and there was someone, I think it might have been Cabal, there was someone there that made the argument of, well, you can't do a review without playing the game. This is sort of unethical on our part. We we shouldn't publish the review. And so we had this internal debate and Case was arguing, well, isn't it indicative of the game that, well, my opinion of it is that it's not worth playing for more than two hours. That's That's my, I guess, professional opinion that, this wasn't a very good game and this is why I didn't enjoy it. And he, he wrote quite a good review for it. I, in the end, sided to his logic. I think as long as a reviewer does their due diligence and actually expresses their own experience with the game, puts that pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and puts out a detailed piece of writing that says, well, I played The Escapists. I'd rather be in prison. Here's why. And then... Oh, one out of five and publish that. I I personally don't have an issue with that because I do get the logic of, well, you haven't experienced the entire game. It might get better. You ha- I haven't been fair to developers. But if the developers haven't been able to provide an experience that grabs you in, that makes you want to keep on playing, there's always going to be certain people that will drop the game because they don't have the patience. Whereas I guess I'm a bit more patient. I, I generally push through games and see and try to find some enjoyment from them so it's very personal and i think goes back to what we were saying earlier that it is very opinion based it's there's no science to reviews so i do understand why there is a lot of emphasis on oh you must reviewers must play x amount of a game or 
X percentage of a game before they review it. But I don't think that's necessarily a healthy thing to do. Yeah, I think I think I tend to agree. I mean, again, our, our policy, if you want to call it on Rocket Chainsaw, was beating the game. Um, you know, beating being whatever the game defines as beaten, not necessarily 100%ing it, um, which I think is pretty... It's probably the most standard uh, policy if you look at game critic sites, I would say. It, it's pretty much there. But you do occasionally see a few game for certain games and for certain um, one-offs, you might see people deviate from that. I, I remember uh would have been what, 2015 or 16, whenever Star Fox Zero came out, um, and I pulled it up now so I can cite it properly, was a... Uh, I mean, they say it's not a review, even though it's under their review section and you know, claim that they they can't call it a review, but a review by Arthur, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, either G's or Guys, G-I-E-S, you, you be the judge, um, on Star Fox Zero, where he said pretty much similar to what um, what Case said. It was, it, this case was, I played enough of the game to know I hate it, and I refuse to play more. And so I can't call this a review because Polygon won't let me, but that's my stance kind of thing. And they still published it, so uh, an interesting loophole i suppose they made to being like we won't let you call it a review but it's a review and everything but name i remember that caused a, a pretty big stir and um at least the the star fox fan community and and sort of began that discussion with when you're a paid reviewer for a pretty big website i mean a it's your job but you know i, I push back and say well your job is to do what your boss says and if your boss is fine to publish a, uh, a review of a game you haven't finished You've done your job. Um, I don't know if you necessarily owe it to the readers to do anything else. Again, particularly when you're... I think that what you do owe to the readers is, is transparency. If you just say, I didn't finish it and I'm not going to finish it because I didn't enjoy it or I played enough and I actually enjoyed it and I didn't finish it, but I've enjoyed it so much that I can tell you to buy this game now because you're going you're gonna to love it. I don't need to finish the last 20%. Even if the ending's crap, I'd still say this is a worthwhile game. That, that to me is valid again as long as you're very upfront and um disclose that i think and if anything with reviews and critique disclosures and transparency is becoming more and more in my mind the the key thing i I think you can almost do whatever you want as long as you're not not leaving any potential it's hard to say potential bias because people what people think is a bias is almost very subjective but anything that could be seen as um an important fact of important bit of context for the uh reader to have as long as that's on the table i think you're you're doing your job at least that's my stance which sounds similar to yours i suppose i think the issue is that people put reviewers on a pedestal because there's always this uh, side argument of well should a reviewer be a good gamer whatever or that sort of old get good analogy of well oh this this person couldn't understand god hand and gave it a two out of ten on ign because they just couldn't play the game. And, ah, oh, they should have got someone else to review that game because it wasn't fair to the game, which I do get that sentiment. But there's also that counter-argument of, well, if there's a game that's so inaccessible that only a core group of people are going to enjoy it or think it's good or you have to like character action games and get something out of the game, then I think it is legitimate to have a reviewer that isn't familiar with the genre tried as long as they I guess from the outset say well I'm not normally a big fan of this genre but I like to give it a go but I think it does come down to the ethics of these websites I think if you have a reviewer that hates JRPGs for example 
you shouldn't give them a JRPG to review. It makes logical sense because, as we discussed in the last episode, there's going to be certain types of games that you and I like to play and we have preferences and we're no different to reviewers. Even Well, I know we did review back in the day, but as just consumers and gamers, we're no different to a reviewer. Reviewers will have certain biases. They'll have certain games like, like they have certain genres they hate. So I think there is a... There's sort of a duty of care these websites and outlets have to be fair to games and not, I guess, stack the deck against certain games. Because I think there definitely is legitimate criticisms for how reviews are handled out there. I I don't want to be all defensive to the reviews process because I I guess, as I said from the outset, I don't like the 1 to 10, 1 to 5 scales. I understand why they're used, but I don't like it. And I think it's a big issue in in the reviews process. And I think there's a lot of other issues as well. So... I very much believe it needs to be handled in an intelligent way and because if you don't handle it in an intelligent way, the the consumers, the people that read your content and consume your content are gonna they're going to criticize you and hold you to account. It's like IGN reviewing Alpha Ruby and Omega Sapphire and um or is it the other way? Is it Either way. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> Whatever those name um games are called. And they they met they gave it a seven point four and their co- their criticism was there was too much water which y- you can have legitimate criticisms of that game I, I never played it but I I heard diehard Pokemon fans have issues with it but when you sort of have an opinion that is very contrary to the majority of a fan base you'll lose mind share it's similar to being at, good at playing a game I know that SpongeBob game Battle for Bikini Bottom came out recently and I can't remember what review site it was but there was this video review there was a written review and i had a video with it and the reviewer was complaining about oh the controls are really fiddly and i'm having all these problems i don't know if you saw it zach but i did yeah he had all that trouble with that puzzle and it just turned out you could watch the footage of him trying to do this puzzle and it's like mate just back up behind the button and then press the action button and you'll land on the the lever and there'll be no problems whatsoever. But And people really got angry at this reviewer because they said, well, you can't play the game. Your opinion is is not right. And I guess that is the issue that reviewers face of this idea of, well, if I'm not 100% perfect, if I don't appease everyone, well, which is impossible, they're going to get called out by certain sections of the community saying, well, your opinion's not valid and here's why. Yeah, that yeah that was an interesting one because it's it, to be honest. I mean, I I've played Battle for Bikini Bottom on on GameCube and now on uh, Switch, and it's interesting because in some regards, what he was saying was fair. But yeah, when I watched that video, I'm like, you are just missing a very obvious solution to this puzzle that has very little to do with the problems of of the controls, and that just completely can discredit you. Uh, even if again, what you're saying is is valid. Uh, so you do. You're right. I think when you're a big organization, you definitely do have a bit of that obligation to make sure you pick the the best reviewer on your staff for the job. Obviously, if you're a one-man shop or a, a very small team, you're going to just review what you review and uh, you just got to make a call if you even should review something, I suppose, is, is the decision you need to make. Uh, one thing that's also interesting to consider, because we've obviously talked about that in relation to genres, but the other one is series. Like, I mean, most games these days aren't new IP, or maybe not most if we count all the thousands of Steam games that come out and mobile games, but a lot of the big ones, the AAA ones that probably get the most, you know, attention from a reviews perspective are 
a new entry in an existing series, which will have a fan base and there probably are fans on, again, the staff. Is there an obligation, you think, to make sure a fan of, you know, if, if someone's never played a Zelda game, should they be reviewing Breath of the Wild 2 when it comes out? Because uh, I always remember there was a really fascinating review and I wish I knew what, you know, magazine number it was, but it was in Hyper. Uh, I won't guess who it is. I think I know who wrote it, but I won't guess because I was literally like probably 12 or 13 when it was written. But it was for Halo ODST and like the opening sentence was like, I've never played a Halo game <laughs> and I'm reviewing this Halo game. Uh, and they were very critical of the Halo game, but they said they were a fan of FPSs. So they ticked that box. They know what, well, they, you know, claim to know what a good FPS is. And they said this ODST, it's not good, um, which I think I've probably got a bunch of people already their blood boiling and hearing that phrase which i just found fascinating as someone who had no emotional investment in halo at that point in my life i just was like wow that's a really interesting take i don't know how i'd react you know if it was a series i cared about at that time like mario or zelda what do you think do you reckon you need to be a fan of a series to review a game i think there's arguments for and against it because because there's the aspect of, well, if you put a fan on a game and they are uh, a sort of a diehard Zelda fan or a diehard Spyro fan or Crash Bandicoot or what have you, and you sit them down with the game and they can't see the faults of the game because, oh, it's the latest Mario game. It's amazing. Miyamoto is a genius. He can't do anything wrong. 10 out of 10. I love Yoshi. I love Birdo. This is the best thing ever. Like, but go buy it. Buy, buy, buy now. And then there's not really any value out of a review like that. But I think ultimately it comes down to the professionalism aspect of reviewing. If someone is a professional but also a fan of a game, they can generally compartmentalize it. And, well, you get the value out of their thoughts because they might be a huge fan of the series, so they can see the flaws of it. They can see, well, this entry does something that a previous entry didn't do or vice versa. And this is good or this is bad. Whereas if you get someone that had never played a Halo game before, well, they can judge ODST in a vacuum, but they can't judge it compared to previous Halo games. So in their review, you won't get a sense of, well, if you enjoyed Halo 2 or Halo 3, will you like this game? Whereas if I read a Breath of the Wild review and it's someone who's played every single Zelda game and they can spend a significant period of time in their review talking about how this is an evolution in the Zelda formula and this is what it adds to the formula and the franchise. And that's quite a helpful review and a helpful um, perspective to provide. So I think it's it can very much go both ways and it very much depends on the outlet. But I think ultimately it is there's a benefit to be had if you put someone who is a big fan of JRPGs on a JRPG and if you put a someone who's a big fan of racing games on the latest Forza game because they're going to have interesting thoughts on how it fits in the genre and hopefully the series it sits within as well. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Uh, I think, yeah, the only reason, or not only reason, but um, there is sometimes value to like having that alternate take, particularly when you know most sites are going to cover the the fan route i suppose i think that's probably the standard approach for a big franchise and so sometimes it is, there is value to being that one you know outlet that's like we got a, a newcomer to the series review it um so if you're a newcomer as well maybe this is the review for you to read rather than the others because you might see oh well they're all complaining about certain changes and stuff 
as a newcomer, this might actually be quite a fresh experience or a good experience when you don't have those biases. Um, you know, I can think of, I mean, you know, again, recent example, Paper Mario Origami King. If this is your first Paper Mario game, uh, probably very good. Uh, if you're somebody who's, you know, kind of a bit like where I sit, where you sort of have those memories of, of Thousand Year Door and uh, Paper Mario 64, you struggle not to compare them, even if that's not the fair thing to do. You, you still end up doing it, right? Um, which may sort of give you, again, a slight negative opinion on a game that isn't um, isn't going to be present for a newcomer. But yeah, so I think that's that's something that always needs to be considered. And again, as I, we've said before, just disclose where, what your status is at the start, and I think you've done the right job. Um, doesn't stop people yelling at you for the number at the end because they didn't read that disclosure, but, but it is what it is. Just to grab that, what you just said, I think it comes down to you're not going to catch every single audience when you write a review. So if you wrote a review of Paper Mario Origami King from your perspective as a big fan of the franchise, played most of the games, huge fan of Thousand Year Door, and these are issues with this game because it doesn't live up to that lineage, then there's going to be a whole host of people that sit in the camp you do, and they'll find that review of value because they can say, well, Zach didn't enjoy Paper Mario Origami King because it doesn't do this stuff that Thousand Year Door did really strongly, so I'm not going to like it, I'm not going to buy the game. But that's not going to be helpful for a newcomer who has never played a Paper Mario game. But if a new if you had never played Paper Mario before, you didn't know who Mario was, and you played Paper Mario Origami King, and then you give your opinions of it and say, well, this is fantastic, this is amazing, that's going to apply more to someone who has never encountered Paper Mario before than the diehard fan. So I think there is this aspect of it that it's going to be impossible to capture everyone with a review because of how diverse people's opinions and perspectives are. Which I think comes back to why people get so angry because I think so many people uh, expect a review to be, I hate this phrase, but so so many people say, oh, a review needs to be objective, it needs to be as factual. And it's like, you can't have that it doesn't exist you know like you can state facts like don't state lies don't say a game has a you know constant 60 frames per, se- per second frame rate when it has a, a fluctuating 60 to 30 um things like that but but whether it's good or bad that that isn't a f- it's not a fact it's an opinion um but so many people approach reading reviews as an opinion and sorry as a fact and and they they when it doesn't align to their truth to their feelings they're like well you're wrong and that's why they sort of attack them. But speaking of attacking, we've started to see some of the reviews. I wonder, attack might be a strong word, but retaliate and throw some of the criticisms uh, that you might see at a uh, thrown at a reviewer back at the people, you know, on Twitter, uh, in the comment sections, um, back at them. This is where I want to delve a bit more into The Last of Us 2. Uh, and it's controversy or one of its controversies, to say the least. Um, I'll, I'll quickly disclose, uh, I haven't played the game. I've been pretty spoiler-free on it as well. Uh, I played the first game, not to completion, because it's just not my type of game, personally. Um, but I enjoyed, you know, enjoyed it for the most part. So I don't have a much of a stake in this or, or feel very passionately about the game itself, but I do find the discourse around it interesting. Uh, Brendan, I think you're in a similar boat, right? You, you haven't played it, I'm pretty sure of that, but I, I don't know if you've read any of the spoilers or, or story or anything online. So I haven't played either game, but I've read up on the stories and I'll probably play them eventually. So I know a bit of the context about it all. Yeah, well, that's good. Um, so I, hopefully that, again, 
disclosure, you know what where we're coming from. But what I've seen a lot of, you know, game came out, well, actually, take a few months before the game came out, game leaked, uh, or at least the story and a lot of cutscenes leaked, uh, pretty pretty much two or three months before release. And that story has had a very strong reaction, uh, a lot of negative, some positive, but a lot of negativity uh, around the internet. Um, then fast forward to June, reviews start coming out. Uh, if you look at the Metacritic or you know Open Critic, you'll see critic reviews are pretty po- positive on on Last of Us Two, uh, which naturally saw a lot of people who were already saying the story is crap attack those reviewers, saying, "What do you mean this is good? It's bad." Like I've read the story, I know it's bad. To which a lot of reviewers I've seen on, and not just reviewers, but people that work for these sites and have had early access or have just played the game, sort of attack back and say, "Well, no, have you played the game? Because we have, and we liked it." Uh, so, sort of throwing that argument to, you know, "Oh, did you complete the game, Mister Reviewer or Mrs. Reviewer? Um, if not, then you shouldn't be writing your review." Back back at them. So it, it it's interesting to me as a non-professional, as just a a casual commentator are you entitled to say or i mean obviously free speech you can say whatever you want but is there validity to an opinion of like hey i've read the story and i didn't like it and that's why i play last of us like do you need to play the game to to make that opinion or can is it fair to say look it's a story you can sort of pick up on it without touching a controller and if that's what you what we're going to potentially go into the game for then there's no harm in saying, "Hey, I, I don't think this is good because I've I've seen that part of it and I've decided not to to purchase it." And well, that should be the calm way of coming to the conclusion. But again, many have obviously gone out and been more aggressive <laughs> against people. I guess, yeah. To to boil it down to a question, what are your thoughts? Can you sort of assess a game without even touching it and express sort of opinions on its quality? Do you reckon? There's a number of different issues that sprout up from this idea, I guess, because. On the one hand, you have the state of gaming in 2020. I guess at the same time, games are becoming more cinematic. They're also becoming more immersive. So on one hand, there's the aspect of, well, you have to play a game to understand what the game is about. The role that a story plays in a game is generally very heavily entwined with the gameplay if it's done correctly. So it's very hard to separate the two. But then on the other hand, a lot of games are trying to move ever closer to that sort of film-like quality. Like, you have all those David Cage Quantic Dream games, which I've never played, but I've watched playthroughs because, honestly, it's pretty much the same experience watching someone play one of those games and playing it yourself. It's a very cinematic sort of experience. So I've done it, I I must say. There is the ability of going on Wikipedia, reading the synopsis of a movie or a game, and thinking, well, that was interesting. This is something I want to experience. I'm going to go rent the movie. I'm going to go buy the game and watch it and play it. Whereas there's also the other hand of, well, a synopsis and a written account of a story or a narrative isn't going to get all the nuances, isn't is going to miss a lot of what actually goes down, all the scenes, how it's all put in context. So I think it is a bit of a grey area. And I think ultimately... If you really want to judge a creative endeavour, you need to experience it as the developer, as the creators intended it. You need to go play that game. You need to go watch that movie. You need to go to the art gallery and look at the painting in person to actually get the full full weight of that creative endeavour, the full weight of 
what this experience means and what I actually think of the experience. So honestly, I'm going to be quite harsh. And those people that started abusing reviewers and developers on Twitter, I think they should just get a life and play the game. And <laughs> if and honestly, a lot of them are people that didn't want to like the game in the first place. They came with a prejudice of, I don't, I don't want this game to succeed, sort of tall poppy syndrome. So you're never going to win everyone over. It's sort of a fine line because as a developer, even as a, as a critic, as a writer, you don't want to, you don't want to live in a cone of silence. You, you, there's going to be legitimate criticism and detractors to your work, but you also do need to sort of block out a lot of the noise because a lot of them are going to just be rubbish stuff that, people you're never going to win over, people that aren't going to ever agree with you anyway. Yeah, I think that's that's spot on. I mean, I think there's definitely a type of people or type of person that's just cultivated a, a passion of, of basically being critics of critics, I would say. Um, they, they enjoy that almost as much or if not more than playing video games, which is interesting to see. And as you're right, some of them go in, again, ready to hate something. I can almost understand critics you know getting upset at a critic that gives a game you want to be good or you think is good a bad review i I struggle to see the logic in getting so passionate about somebody saying i really like this and being like no you can't like this like that's not allowed like that to me just doesn't make any sense um from a from any angle uh beyond just sort of wanting to bring someone's joy down which which is just not really good except and you sort of used a phrase there which i think about a lot was or a concept is not wanting something to be successful uh and obviously there is that sometimes just that tall poppy element we want to see the you know the the most successful franchises finally have their you know their their stumble or their um come up their failure because it's just yeah exactly like some you know schadenfreude kind of you know uh, mentality but there's also i think some sort of value or I'm not, i don't know if value is the right term but some fear actually is what i'm trying to say where say a game comes out and it's you don't like it you know it's just you don't enjoy it but it gets good reviews and it sells well and the market follows that right so uh i sorry to be so nintendo focused but a, an example that i think is is really uh interesting is you know there was that period in the wii uh, and wii u era where um you know on the wii there was two sets of mario games there was the galaxy games and the uh new super mario brothers games and uh the new super mario brothers game sold really well uh um, well they both sold well but one sold that sold way more than the other uh and that went on to influence uh the style of mario game that came out for quite a number of, of years until i would say mario odyssey came out and it, it might not be that you think those are it's, it's bad games it's not your preference uh or it's not really what you're after and so you kind of get scared whether you you know consciously or subconsciously of like man, this thing I don't like is getting good reviews. It might sell really well. What if that's the trend? What if the games I like start to go away because that's not what's being successful anymore? I feel like that also plays a big part in that kind of visceral response to like, no, 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 stop liking this. Like, please don't like (laughs) this thing because if you like it, then they're going to make more of it and not spend development dollars on, on what I like. I don't know if people realize that, but I definitely think that is a, a fear people have. I definitely agree. And to go back to a previous point we had and that discussion over, well, the competency of critics and the competency of reviewers, I think why people are concerned about it is 
because as the example I used earlier, like with the God Hand, that was a game that some people think of one of the best character action games on the PS2 was sort of genre defining, but it sold very poorly and it never really had a follow up or a game again like it. So you have a very dedicated fan base for these more niche genres and they'll get very defensive and very concerned when a reviewer will not understand a game because they might honestly not be good at it, might have no interest in that type of game, and they'll say, oh, that was terrible, 2 out of 10, 7 out of 10, not enough water, whatever that actually means, or sorry, too much water. (laughs) So I think that's why people are invested with the process of critics because there's certain games and certain styles of games they want to succeed because they're a big fan of. And as you just mentioned, there's certain games and certain styles they don't want to succeed because they want their favorite franchises go back to the way they were or be more inventive going in new directions. So that's why I think people do get so invested and they become so vocal and so involved. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think we've all, or maybe not all, but if you've been playing games long enough, you've always got that one little niche franchise, that cult classic that um, reviewed super well and then uh, died. And probably by now, most of those have gotten Kickstarter revivals, which really <laughs> seems to be the common trend. So, you know, kudos to Kickstarter for that, I suppose. Uh, ignoring its other problems, which might be a topic for another day. Um, Definitely. But I think we also take a step back, not a step back, but we kind of, you know, go back to something we talked about earlier, which is Fantasy Critic, and, and talk about another game that we, we've talked about a few times, but that's like this most recent Paper Mario, which, uh, unlike Last of Us 2, I think we're both playing at the moment. Um, I don't think either of us have finished it, unless you've had a real, you know, powwow session last day or so. Um, <laughs> Not quite. Yeah, um, but but that, I think that's an interesting case where, and it brings up a topic that I, I, I've become increasingly passionate about, and that's the difference between something being disappointing and something being bad. And I don't think people on both sides of the coin, being critics and uh, just readers of reviews, don't always get and don't always express very well. You know, I follow a YouTuber, Arlo, little Muppet guy. Um, It's quite good. And he is clearly, in all his videos, basically said, Paper Mario Origami King is probably a good game. And from what I've played so far, he thinks it's a good game. But he's still disappointed because it's not what he wanted, which is which is a different concept to saying this is bad because the mechanics are crap and, you know, the graphics are crap and blah, blah, blah. He's not saying that. He's just saying he's disappointed. But he cops so much flack for people being like, it's a good game. What are you talking about? Like, it's great. You know, I love this. I love that. And you haven't finished it. So how can you even say you're, you're disappointed yet? And I'm like, I find it fascinating how we really struggle uh, with these kind of different measures i suppose that uh we can use to discuss in a game and our thoughts in a game but people just seem to want to boil it down to good and bad and they they really don't read the nuance of our all the other words we use to describe it because because they don't they aren't just good or bad in, in different you know with a different letter count they actually have different meanings is that something you've noticed as well or is that something you agree with or I guess it's something that is very present and it's there because I've also watched Arlo, but honestly, I've ignored his Paper Mario content because it's been very clear for sort of the last six months that he wasn't going to enjoy this game because it's not what he wants. 
Well, that that isn't an incorrect opinion to hold. It's it's very valid. He that's his opinion. That's his perspective, as we talked about earlier. But you're a hundred percent right. People have this fascination with: is the game good? Is the game bad? Oh, I've picked up this copy of Breath of the Wild, Skyward Sword, Twilight Princess. Are these good games? Tell me in sort of fifty seconds, should I play it or not? And they aren't open to sort of having a descriptive detailed understanding of why they should play a game or not they just they just want to know should i play it or not and i guess that is understandable because people's times aren't infinite especially when you get older as you and i have we don't have we don't have enormous spare time to just play a game we want to know if it's a good game or not we want to subconsciously know well if I'm going to invest 50 hours into this RPG, if I'm going to invest 20 hours into this platformer, will I enjoy it? Will I get something out of it? I don't want to waste my time. And I think that comes back into it. People people want to know sort of this arbitrary, should I play this game or should I not play it before they embark on it? And I think that's why the review process, that's why the critic process is under so much pressure because it it plays a really important role in determining what someone might or might not play yeah and i think one thing that topic leads into quite well is when you take the stance of you're reviewing this as a commercial product something you pay money for it becomes that adds another little layer of interest in my mind to it because i feel like most reviewers these days i read not all but most reviews i read do not necessarily talk about the value prospect of a game very often uh, and I'm personally fine with that because as as we sort of touched on, I think what's limiting our gaming time tends to now be more time uh, than it is, you know, finance uh, from where we are in our stages of life. You know, I'm happy to pay 20 bucks or 30 bucks for a five hour game or a three hour game, sometimes even a two hour game if the game is good, because that's, that's fine to me. If it's experience worth having, I'll pay the entry fee. But for a lot of people, they are thinking like, hey, I only get, you know, maybe you're a kid, maybe you're just, you know, saving up for a, a house, so you don't want to waste your money on too many games. You are thinking about bang for your buck. And I, I, I find that it's a struggle to determine, you know, what is the right call to make on that as a reviewer, because it's it's so hard to pick like how much dollar value do you put in quality how much dollar value do you put in the length of the game some would say you should ignore the length of the game it doesn't matter as long as it's fun the entire time you're playing it i don't know if that's again when you're taking it as a, a review of a commercial product i don't know if you can really ignore the price all the time uh versus if you're a website that's like nah we just review this as art and we ignore the the dollar value you know it could be a thousand bucks but if it's good we'll tell you it's good what do you think do you think reviewers do a good job at sort of expressing hey this is something to spend your your hard-earned cash on or have they all sort of stepped away from it a bit i think for the most part reviewers have stepped away from it but unfortunately i can't remember the name of the channel but there's this one youtube channel i do follow occasionally and he he ranks review and he ranks games on a buy rent or sort of don't buy scale and he very much takes into account the value of a game because if he if it's a game that it's sort of worthwhile playing but it's not worth you spending money on he'll give it a, or, or rent it or i think for pc games he doesn't have the rent category because you can't really rent pc games but i think there is value to that approach but 
I honestly do agree with you in that I think price is becoming less and less of an issue. Well, actually, I can't say price is becoming less of an issue because you just have to look in the Australian context. We're slowly getting back to the point where new release games are $100 again, depending on where you shop and where you buy them. And I think for context for people that aren't Australian, which I think most of our viewers are, well, at one point in sort of the 2010s, I remember going into game when game still existed and Modern Warfare 2 was like $120 to buy new. And like that sort of the prices for games were going out that way. Then they've contracted to if you go to JB Hi-Fi, you can get a new release for about $69, $79. But the prices are always fluctuating a bit. So I think it would be a value, I think, if reviewers do go back to that. But if reviewers go back to the notion that value matters, one of the issues you have is Jason Schreier actually um, talked about it in a joke tweet or what he called a joke tweet on Twitter when he just tweeted out, games are too long. And a lot of people started piling <laughs> onto him because they thought, oh, he's just making fun of The Last of Us Part Two in a non-nuanced way. But well, he expanded on it in a subsequent tweet, and what he was talking about was, well, there's this idea that a AAA game needs to do these sorts of things, needs to have a multiplayer mode, needs to be X amount of hours long. So you'll get games with a lot of bloat, games that are just artificially um, prolonged because, oh, we need to give value to the customer, we need to justify them spending $70 on this game, which... I guess kind of makes sense, but ultimately for me, if if the length of a game is artificial just to create value when it's not really value because it, it doesn't stand up, it's sort of, it's just bloat, it's just filler, that's a suboptimal experience. I'm not going to, I'm not going to enjoy that as much as I would have, but then then again, I'm the sort of gamer that will go out and buy shoot em ups and arcade games that are very the entire idea of them, it's it's replayability. If I was just going to play it from the start to finish and then never play it again, I can do that in sort of 40 minutes. But I'm not getting the total experience out of that type of genre. But some people do see games in that viewpoint. And I think it's actually, there was a shoot 'em up in the 90s, Silhouette Mirage, and it was localized in the US by Working Designs, the old massive JRPG publisher in the US, never really released anything in Powell Australia but they actually took the game and artificially made it more difficult so people wouldn't just rent it and I think at the time you could it's like Australia like EB Games you could return a game to retail they artificially made the game harder so it would take longer to finish so people wouldn't return it which drastically changed the nature of the game so it comes down to the fact that we do need to recognize it Reviews have a great impact on the development process, and I think this is probably a good topic to move to because do you have Troy Baker's tweet tweet up? That might be something worth reading. Yes, I've got the uh, that now infamous Troy Baker quote up. Well, not really his quote, co-opting um, a quote from you know Theodore Roosevelt talking about uh, you know it, it's titled "The Man in the Arena," uh, which is I mean I won't read the whole quote out, but I mean that generally talks about how. You know, the critic who doesn't actually do the act, you know, isn't isn't the gladiator or the person in, in the fight or the arena, but just criticizes how they perform, that they, they basically 
don't have any credibility to stand on in the sense that they're not there fighting the fight to to achieve you know what is to be achieved Troy Baker for those who don't know is a voice actor um, probably one of the most commonly used and and prolific voice actors particularly in video games Uh, and naturally this was in reference to uh, The Last of Us 2 which he plays one of the the titular oh not titular because it's not called The Last of or Us, but the one of the, the main characters from both games. So it's interesting because first off, he isn't even really the developer. He's just a, not just a voice actor, but it, it is a a different role to, you know, the developers he's defending, I suppose. But also it's kind of implying unless you make games, you can't criticize them, which means most of us can't criticize them, <laughs> which, which I don't like uh, the concept of because... I mean, I think I know when a game is good or bad. I mean, you know, obviously subject- subjective, but I, I, I'm pretty confident I can I can tell you if something's a good, well-made game or a bad-made game. I've played enough games to do that. Similarly, you know, uh, I can tell you if a movie was good or bad, I think. I don't think I need to be a filmmaker to, to do that. I think you set up too many barriers to who's allowed to express an opinion if it's like, nah, unless you've been involved in the creation of something like this, your opinion isn't valid. But also, I think we also, we we need to acknowledge that I don't think anyone that says a game is, okay, there are some critics that may do, in my opinion, unprofessional call-outs to developers, right? Oh, the developers are lazy, the developers are blah, 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 because they did this or that. I think that kind of criticism should never feature in a professional review, personally. Unless you're Jim Sterling and taking the piss out of uh, the D-grade uh, dodgy developers, and then it's sort of allowed. Yeah, when, you, when you're doing literal asset flips of, um, you know, nudity or whatever, like pre-made content, and you're just chucking them up on Steam, yeah, that's, that's one thing. But, but, I mean, in general, like, if you said, oh, like, look how you know, this person's, like, hair clips into their glasses in, in a game. Lazy animators couldn't be bothered fixing that before releasing the game. I think you're I, th- I think you're sort of ignoring how hard it is to do a lot of the things that we take for granted as the player. Uh, and I think most people, maybe not people, but most professional reviewers get that. They get games are hard to make. Uh, if games were not hard to make, I think a lot more of us would be doing it. I'm, I'm sure you or I would be making games if if we if they were super simple <laughs> to make but they're not so i think that's a valid sort of standpoint as long as you're not sort of throwing shade at the developers directly i think that's okay but you're still allowed to say a game is bad or this aspect of a game is bad and even like the design choices like uh there's a there's a very big you know not only with with games but anything you know there's intent versus um versus how an audience receives something and sure a developer might intend for a certain part of a game to play a certain way or invoke a certain emotion but if the audience doesn't you know feel the way that they think they're going to well it's it's unfortunately out of your hands you don't get to go and tell them no 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 you just don't get it you don't you know you weren't playing right or you you don't understand what i was trying to do here um, unfortunately, I think in that case, the audience or the critic has the, um, has the final say on how a certain part of a game makes them feel or what they think about it. Which brings us back to The Last of Us 2, doesn't it, Zach? Where, well, there's now infamous example of Sony, not Naughty Dog, but Sony, the publisher, contacted Vice because 
But Vice Review, which actually isn't scored, right? Vice does actually what I like out of a review site these days. It's just an essay about the game, pretty much, about what the reviewer thinks about the game and their opinion of it, which I think is what reviews should go back to. Get get rid of the scales. We don't really need them. But the review's quite good. I've read the review. I haven't played the game, of course, as we disclosed. But it's a good review that the, the reviewer's just disappointed with the game. He just believes that it hasn't lived up to the previous game. It's a larger, more expansive version of it, but it doesn't really significantly improve upon it. And it's it's just a bit, I think he says it's a bit soulless and it's just bloodthirsty and it didn't really do it for him. And Sony's Sony basically contacted Vice and basically they opened up dialogue with Vice and basically said, oh, we think your review is flawed. It didn't consider all the advances we made to the game and all the things that are better than the first game. I think that's utterly ridiculous. That's really that's really just gatekeeping. That's really saying, well, we're the developers, we're the publisher, we know this is a good game. Bow down and give us a ten out of ten. Bow down and say this is the the new this is the Sistine Chapel of video games. It's amazing. It's a masterpiece. Do that. Don't criticize it because we we, we fixed all the problems. We fixed all the the holes in the game. It's it's fantastic. It's flawless. You can't critique it, which it's just fantasy land. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, right? Because there's a few complex elements to consider here. Uh, I mean, first off, I think a, a developer or a publisher has a right to correct any sort of factual inaccuracies in a review, right? Like if I, for example, said, oh, this, this game doesn't have uh, an easy mode and I think a game like this needs an easy mode, but I just fail to find it in the options, I think it's okay for the developer or publisher to call me out and say, no, 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 it, there is an easy mode. You just had to do this and that, and then you would have found it. Um, to which then I might amend my review and say, there is an easy mode, but it's hard to find in the menu, which is the weird in of itself. <laughs> and that's the valid <laughs> criticism. Um, <laughs> so I think that's okay. But when it's like very much saying, I don't think that they understood what we were going for. Or I don't think they you know, were the right person for this, you know, review because they, they didn't enjoy this aspect. Yeah, that's that's not on. That's just, yeah, as you said, it, it is it is basically trying to treat reviews as PR, which, I mean, to an extent, I think a lot of companies are, if we're being honest. Um, we still hear about the occasional attempt at companies trying to pay reviewers. Uh, I tend to think it's not the many of the bigger ones, usually. But even then, if you take that out of the equation... We can't ignore the fact that most of these review copies are given to places for free, which is kind of like payment in a in a way or a fringe benefit. Uh, and that's not that's usually on top of what may have been a a multi year promotion cycle involving invitations to events, getting flown out to places of of note, and um, eating fancy food, drinking good champagne, getting entertained by celebrities, and that kind of natural. Not so much beneficial for us, the reader, but beneficial between the two parties. This kind of synergy between the reviewer sites and the um, the actual publishers themselves. And I think a lot of big publications do try to find ways to separate that. Uh, you know, like they might have an independent editorial team that doesn't have any contact with the relationship, you know, managers or the account managers that deal with the publishers or the, uh, and more importantly, the advertising department who 
you take cash for you know literally playing ads for a game and again that was referred to it earlier but the massive controversy where jeff gersman was fired from gamestop for his bad kane and lynch review for when the game was being advertised on on gamespot uh on you know as, as ads again long time ago so don't don't judge modern gamespot too harshly <laughs> by it but it is what it is they're all owned by the same parent company now which i find hilarious giant bomb and gamespot but you know back to the back to the past you know that that is a real delicate element, and it, and it's hard to think it doesn't. I won't say factor into the reviews, but consciously or subconsciously, I must have a little bit of bias, particularly when you're a tiny website or or a fan site, right? Like Sony fan sites, Nintendo fan sites. I mean, if you look at a Metacritic or stuff, like, and you look at say, you know, The Last of Us Two, some of those one hundred percent, those tens, they're gonna be, you know. When you read the name of the website, you're like, you exclusively cover PlayStation games for sure. Uh, and I can tell, look, maybe you honestly feel that way about the game and it's fair, but a lot of them, there's definitely a bit of like, I need to be on the good side of these companies because I want my site to grow and for it to grow, I need to have early access to these games because uh, otherwise I can't review them. You know, because let's be honest, people tend to stop reading reviews after day one uh unfortunately so a review that's a week late isn't nearly as useful or uh, for growing site traffic or readership as a as a review that is released the same day as everyone else's reviews funnily enough well exactly and uh i guess going back to a much earlier point that is the reason why sites keep the numbered scales because that's a smaller site i know i went through this when we tried to get another castle on metacritic you need to have a scoring system to get on metacritic and smaller sites want to get on metacritic so they get those click-throughs they get people onto their websites and they get views so there is that synergy there as well and i do agree with you i think it's hard for smaller public well smaller publications and smaller sites to sometimes get out of the influence of publishers and game developers because i remember I wasn't involved in the staff back in the day, but for Aussie Nintendo, there was a publisher that blacklisted them because they they um, wrote a negative review on, I think it was a racing game or it was some sort of game along those lines for the Wii and they gave it a poor review. So that publisher no longer sent them review codes, no longer dealt with Aussie Nintendo because of that one review. So there's that element to it. And I guess the flip side is, is the... There's the element that developers and publishers are also beholden to websites and reviewers and magazines because you just have to look at developers in especially the late two, the late 2000s, early 2010s when we were receiving a lot of reports about there were developers who would get bonuses, financial bonuses, incentives from the publisher of their games if their game got a certain Metacritic score or, or if they got over 80%, they'd get a bonus if they didn't forget the bonus you're not getting it because uh review scores are tied to sales and we need a good review score and that happened to obsidian with fallout new vegas i think they needed 80 to get the bonus and they got a 70 to, they got 79 on metacritic and that's a game people swear by that's a game people absolutely love but because they got that 79 from the reviewers they didn't get the bonus the developers actually i guess I don't want to say suffer, but the developers were financially disadvantaged because of the reviews. So I guess that goes back to the entire, I guess, undercurrent of this conversation we're having in that 
we might have issues with the reviews process. We might have issues with whether a review is objective or not. But ultimately, it, it's sort it's a very key process to the gaming industry. It's sort of embedded in there. And I think that's why so many people are invested in what reviewers are doing, why people are so invested in is a game good or is a game good air quotes or not because reviews can very much make or break a game financially and sales wise yeah i mean we even see um you know examples of you hear about i've never seen it obviously firsthand but like a lot of companies do those internal well i don't i think that's the right term but like they pay someone to do a mock review effectively of, of the game before they even go out to the critics um so they can sort of get a sense of like oh is this gonna go well or not like do we need a few months more to develop this or are we good to go and and issue review code out kind of thing and, and announce a release date uh so yeah right yeah they publishers and everyone take reviews very 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 seriously and it's a little unfortunate reviews can absolutely affect sales and they do you also find the occasional example of where games review horribly and they just still sell bucket loads uh and it really depends on the type of game right like i think reviews for a triple a core game uh matter way more than like reviews of just dance right i remember when um i was working retail when the first just dance came out and we we all had a good laugh at what at the time if i recall was a very poor metacritic rating like just just reviews flambasted that game because they were like it's just videos on the screen and you just wave the wii remote kind of in the same direction of videos just dance is sold you know millions and millions of copies so in some cases, it's almost irrelevant <laughs> what the reviewer <laughs> says because, again, it probably goes to show that we've got, a, a, at least in our own little world, a bit of a glut of a type of person that reviews a game, at least back then and to an extent still now. I don't think we've really branched out uh, enough in terms of getting a really diverse array of opinions. And when I say diverse, I'm not talking like, you know, your your races, your religions um, and genders, though I'm sure that needs some work as well. I just mean more like, the kind of person that likes Just Dance is different to the kind of person that likes The Last of Us. You might have that same person kind of reviewing those games um, or reviewing games for literal children uh, that are very simplistic, done by adults who aren't thinking about, what would a five-year-old think about this? <laughs> like, would this be challenging for them? I don't know. I mean, I remember, well, I think it might have been one of the Kotaku writers talking about, at Kotaku AU, talking about how he sometimes freelances. Oh, no, I remember who it was. It was, um, I'm pretty sure it was, uh, he used to be on Good Game. He was, like, the guy that, like, controversially got cut off Good Game. Um, oh, um, Jung something, wasn't it? Junglist. Yeah, Junglist. Junglist, yeah. Yeah, um, I think it was him. I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but I think he was talking about how he sometimes freelances for K-Zone, which is a very, um you know, uh, prominent kids magazine that's been around for decades now. I used to read K-Zone when I was in primary school. Um, and he was just saying how it's very interesting trying to write a video game review for them because it's, it's a very different mindset you have to um, have to have uh, <laughs> to writing for an IGN or a, a GameSpot. But yeah, it's, it's, it's it, it, I think we've, in this last hour and a bit, uh, we've really touched on a lot of, um, it's just a ton, right? There's so many issues. Not to be negative, but there's, there's so many problems that can and do come up in this sort of culture around video game reviews. And it's a bit of a hodgepodge. <laughs> this is what I think I've come to find. I don't know how. 
I don't know how you solve it. I don't know if you can. I think it's kind of, it's become its own little beast that's going to sort of continue being what it is for, for the most part. I think it's almost getting to the point where we need to come to terms with it. Well, not not to be defeatist, but that's that's where I'm starting to like land after talking about all this. I think there is a bright spot though, Zach, and I think that is, it opens up a whole new kettle of fish, but I think the overall impact of YouTube and YouTubers and Let's Players and Twitch streamers has really changed the dynamic of, well, how reviews are done and who publishers give review codes to and get to review games because podcasts can easily get review codes now and then do a podcast episode reviewing a game and there's nothing written, there's generally not a score. You're just, you're hearing people's opinions talking about the game and similar on YouTube, a lot of YouTubers do score and well, most do give a score, but they sort of, they transcend that sort of Metacritic, a lot of them transcend the Metacritic field because they're just putting it up on YouTube and you can really get a good sense of the game because you're looking at footage of the game, someone playing the game. And I think that's really changed the dynamics from your traditional um, landscape where it was very much dominated by those major websites that have very concentrated ownerships and your fan sites where you get a particular perspective as well. You now have anyone can get a camera and a capture card and start reviewing games. Sure. Most of them are going to be absolutely terrible and you and I don't want to watch their reviews, but there's going to be those really good ones like like Arlo, like some we can't recall at the moment, but are good that will surface to the top and that will provide a good opinion and sort of cut through a lot of the issues that we discussed. So I think ultimately it's an opinion-based field. You're going to, you can't get objective reviews, but I think it is becoming a lot more diverse in opinions and I think hopefully that continues in these well new forms of reviewing and new forms of media. I think the the unfortunately I enjoy reading a long essay on a game, but I think that format is slowly ebbing away. I think it will survive on major sites, but I don't know for how much longer. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um you're right. I hadn't even really put two and two together, but yeah, streamers, uh, let's players, which are uh, almost been you know jumped uh, by by streamers or frog leaped or whatever the term is. But yeah, when they're they're not necessarily reviewing a game, but again, as we said, when reviews are just really expressing an opinion, it's it's almost like getting a again a recommendation from a friend. Uh, is what it feels like sometimes, uh, which we don't call a review, but it, it sort of is, right? You know, even this weekend uh, that's just passed, we've seen. Um, there was the uh, NDA lifted on the beta of Fall Guys, which is a fun sort of battle royale party game coming out, I think, in the week or whatever. And it just skyrocketed to the top of, of Twitch all weekend. And I'll tell you what, that's done, I guarantee you, that people watching their favorite Twitch streamer have fun, like just genuine fun playing a game. Uh, it will sell more copies of that than what score uh you know an ign or whatever gives it next week i guarantee you and and it's not an invalid type of review it's just a a different way of of seeing someone's opinion because you're just watching them form their opinion basically live on the air i mean there are issues um you know similar to reviews where we i remember ea got in a lot of trouble for trying to negotiate these sort of weird deals on the side that have led to you know the need to have that hashtag free game, hashtag paid ad. Only EA. 
Yeah, only uh, EA always, you know, pushing the boundaries on um on consumer uh, <laughs> trends. But uh, you know, and that probably is still present. Again, some some source there's some corruption. Let's be honest with certain Twitch and and YouTubers that again just do stuff for the free games and they'll just be very nice to everyone. But you know, it is a valid form of of again expressing an opinion and evaluating a game. And yeah, you said podcasts also very good. Like. Again, I've said their name a few times, but Giant Bomb, who still do reviews, um, have definitely not done as many reviews as they might have under their more traditional GameSpot days when they were all staffed there and have focused more on their weekly podcasts and their like quick look sort of you know videos. And that's, that's proven to be a real hit because you can say so much more in a podcast than you can in a, you know, a, uh, an article that no one reads or or a um or not no one you read them because you just said you like a good thousand two thousand word page uh, or essay but i'm a masochist so i don't count yeah <laughs> yeah the 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 abnormality or again like a five minute youtube video isn't going to be able to really go into the level of depth that you, you necessarily want uh, i feel like in many ways like we are kind of trending back to like people just want to just want to feel like they're talking to their mates about a game and i think that's where why these things are thriving because it just feels the same even though it isn't the same uh in many respects i I think you're onto something because some of some of my weirdest gaming purchases have been because someone i know on discord told me uh shinobi 3ds is a really good game which it is absolute hidden gem for that platform and just experiences like (laughs) that i would have never thought to I need to get that now. Definitely play Shinobi 3DS. It's really good. It's a really good game. But there's just those experiences that didn't really review that well, sort of went under the radar. But your mate might play it for themselves and think, well, this is a must-play game. You'll really like it. I know what sort of games you like because we hang out. So go play this. And I think it's exactly similar for a Twitch streamer because... You're mainly watching a Twitch streamer if you like their personality, if you like what games they play, if you like their banter. So there's going to be some similarities in taste there. Of course, it's not going to be one-to-one, whatever they like, you'll like, but there's going to be some overlap. So I've never really thought of it that way, but I think you're exactly right, Zach. People want that feeling of talking to their mates or... Yeah, you need to play this game, Zach. You need to play this game, Brendan. And that's what they want. They they don't necessarily want this objective sort of gatekeeper floating over the industry saying, bad game, good game, bad game, good game. They just they just want to have fun. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Uh, and so our recommendation is you all buy a copy of Devil's Third <laughs> on the Wii U. Um... <laughs> In Star Fox Zero. And Star Fox Zero, um, uh, so that's our personal re- no, um, well, kind of. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, I think we've we've done a pretty good review of reviews. I think um, so. I give reviews a six out of ten. Uh, too much water. <laughs> and I give reviews six point eight two five out of ten. And I don't know what the point eight two five means, but I'm just going to put it there because people like decimal points. Yeah, they do. You know, 6.825, much different to a, a 6.820 night and day, basically. That, that's the threshold for when I will buy a game or not. So that, there's my standards laid out there. Um, alrighty, well, I think that concludes our podcast. And speaking of reviews, um, 
if you are listening on a podcasting app, whatever it may be, why don't you leave us a review? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, whether it's five stars or, or zero stars, uh, preferably five, but, you know, up to you. We're keen to get your feedback, and it does help us get noticed by the um, algorithm, uh, whether that's Apple's or Google's or otherwise. Yes, and thank you for all the people who have left reviews. I, I was trying to get them up right now to give them a quick read on air, but I can't quite figure it out at the moment. So hopefully for a future episode. And just want to add to what you said, Zach, and say this is one of the areas where we actually do support arbitrary reviews and arbitrary scale scores. So five out of five, do it. You know it's the right thing to do. So, Zach, where can people find the podcast if they haven't subscribed already or want to follow us on social media and see what the podcast is doing? Of course. Well, I mean, the best places to find us uh, is Twitter at BlowCartPod, one word. You'll find us there. Similar Facebook, it's just search Blowing Cartridges, and we should hopefully come up in your um, in your feed. If you want to reach out to me you can reach me at egorino that is at e-g-g-e-r-i-n-o on um on twitter or i'll you know respond on uh on the blowing cartridges facebook uh as the page if, if you ever wanted to reach out there that's fine and brendan do you want to throw your twitter plug in as well and anything else <laughs> well firstly you can also email us at blowing cartridge at gmail.com we actually got it right first time this time. You can follow us, on, well, you can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, as we mentioned before, leave reviews there on Spotify and any other platform you use for podcasts that scrape RSS feeds will pop up. And to find me personally, if you want to see what I'm rambling about, which if you've listened to an hour and a half of me rambling with Zach, you, I, I, I hope that you do want to see what I ramble about. You can find me at, at Tamazoid on Twitter. And if you also want to hear at Tamazoid ramble more than than this last hour and a bit, or on Twitter, uh, you were just a guest on our, um, our you know, our friend uh, I Drewby's podcast, the uh, the House of Mario, just this week, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I was. I was very um, lucky and honoured to be invited into the House of Mario. It was quite difficult to get in. I had to sneak across the border to Adelaide. On no, actually, I didn't. AFP, I did not cross the border. Don't come knock down my door. But <laughs> it was a really good episode. Uh, for those that don't know, House of Mario is a Nintendo podcast that hosted by Drew and Bryce. And basically, I was a fill-in for Bryce because he couldn't make it uh, to that episode because of, uh, I think Drew was saying he was practicing his handstand. So hopefully, his handstands are going well. And uh, we talked about the latest Nintendo news a few things that are popping up on the horizon. Drew convinced me to buy a a game a analog Game Boy thing that sort of you oh. can play original Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance cartridges on. So apparently, I'm going to pre-order that on the fourth of August now. Thanks, Drew. And it was just a really good uh, conversation we had. I think we went for over two and a half hours, but it was a lot of fun and. We're hoping that we get Drew on in a couple of episodes for to discuss a, one of our topics in depth. It'll be great to hear his opinions because he he's a very in-the-know guy when it comes to video games, not just Nintendo games. He's actually played The Last of Us 2, so I think he's actually a bit more informed than we are, Zach, in some ways. 
maybe he should run this podcast and we should run the Nintendo podcast. Uh, <laughs> no, just, just kidding. <laughs> well, that'll, that'll about wrap it up. So thank you again for tuning in. We will not see you, but you'll hear us hopefully in the next two weeks when we tackle another mammoth topic, which we haven't decided yet, but we'll figure that out. You know, as I said, leave reviews, leave feedback. If there's something you want us to discuss, let us know. We'll think about it. Uh, and until then, have a fantastic fortnight. Not the game, but like the two weeks. Like that's what the word meant before the game, in case you weren't aware. Thank you. But if <laughs> if you are a Fortnite player, win a winner chicken dinner and uh, have a lovely life, Brendan out. the wrong game oh you did it the wrong game that's okay we'll cut it is it winner winner chicken dinners PUBG. (laughs) well that makes it even funnier so i'm gonna leave that in